God, I pray in these next few minutes that you'll do something that uh, is supernatural, something that is uh, something that only you could do, that you will take us into uh, the most holy place. that through your word that we, and the, through the work of the Holy Spirit, that you will take us into a place where we will see your holiness in a way that maybe we never have. And God, I pray that that will be good medicine. I pray that it will be a big help to past, present, and future matters, whatever they might be. We give you this time, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Being a pastor, I've 13 years now. I do a fair amount of counseling. Uh, Maybe once every week. Twice a week, maybe I have an occasion to counsel somebody. And in what I found in 13 years of counseling folks in our body is that usually things have to get pretty bad before they get to the point where somebody's going to reach out. And I, I get that. I understand that. That's sort of a product of um, maybe just our flesh or pride or whatever it might be, something we all share. We don't like to ask for help. But one of the things that struck me over the years that I, I continue to struggle with in counseling is that I, I won't counsel someone who's not part of our church family or is not sitting with us weekly under the preaching of the word because they're intertwined for me. One feeds the other. I can't, I can't separate the two. And it's not uncommon for me in a counseling appointment or in a relationship that I, ongoing relationship that I have with someone counseling where I have to remind someone of what was said on Sunday. There are occasions where I'm even saying, did you hear did you hear what, what we talked about, what we considered through God's word on Sunday? Because it's medicine for this thing. It may be just days ago that that sermon was preached. And I, I don't share that to make anyone who is currently being counseled or going to be counseled feel small. I, I share that because I, I want today, in some ways, to put me out of a counseling job. Now, I know that's not possible, and I'm not trying to lighten my load. But my hope is that today, that through Isaiah 6, that I can help you. That I can help you with past issues. Maybe it's abuse. Maybe someone has um, cheated on you. Maybe someone's betrayed you. Maybe someone's hurt you in some way. Maybe it's a present issue. Maybe you're in a tough job situation where it's just wearing you down, just killing you. Relationships at work or dynamics at work. Maybe you're having difficulties in relationships, period. Or maybe it's one that you can't walk away from in a marriage. Maybe your marriage is on hospice or maybe your marriage has already been pronounced dead and you have these big, huge, massive problems. I want to help you this morning. 
And maybe for the rest of us, it may not have any of those lists. Maybe it's a medical prognosis or some diagnosis that gives us this sense that, man, we're in a fix. If you haven't had any of those things happen yet, you have led a charmed life. And I can make you this promise. It's coming. So I want to help you this morning. I want to help you with a vision of God that can be so profound that it can take past issues, whatever they might be. It might even be a current issue, a yoke of people-pleasing or a yoke of some all the yokes that we can possibly carry around and place on ourselves, that it will give you perspective to make that thing seem smaller. It won't go away. But it may seem smaller, at least, in light of a view of a holy God. I want to help you this morning. I want to, in some ways, though I'm sitting up here, I want to sit beside you. And I want to be your pastor this morning with a sweet passage of Scripture. I'm going to read it in total, just seven verses. And then we're going to spend the rest of our morning breaking that down into four pieces. The seven-verse passage we're going to look at today is part of a vision that a man named Isaiah, a prophet of Judah, and Israel, you could say indirectly, had of the Lord. Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another... And said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then... One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. We're going to look at this in four pieces, and I'll go ahead and give you the headings for those pieces so you'll know what's coming. I don't want to keep you in suspense. We're going to look at verse 1 and consider a true vision of earthly leadership. And then we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 together and consider an obscured vision of God's holiness. And then we're going to look at verse 5 together and consider a true and accurate vision of Isaiah. And then lastly... In verses 6 and 7, we're going to enjoy together God's surprise grace. Beginning in verse 1, just considering this verse 1 and just only part of this verse 1 to be particular. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. I don't expect that any of you really, unless you're just a real bookworm, a real uh, uh, Bible trivia expert, would know much about King Uzziah. 
So I thought I would take a moment to share with you about King Uzziah, because this is important. Isaiah is the only prophet to point out the timing of an event relative to the death of someone else. And he does it twice. And on both occasions, he does it for a specific reason. So he's up to something here, sharing with us or pointing out that this is the year that King Uzziah died. So let's just take a moment and consider this fellow, Uzziah. I'm going to read to you a passage from 2 Chronicles chapter 26. You're welcome to turn there and read if you'd like, or you can just sort of listen and gather the data. That's what we're doing here. We're going to learn a little bit about this Uzziah fellow. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah. Eloth was a port. Uh, Aqaba is the name of it now, that this, this port entering into the Gulf of Arabia, a very important place. He rebuilt this place and restored it to Judah. And after the king, after the king slept with his father, speaking of his father, Judah, I'm sorry, he rebuilt Eloth, and I can hardly say through tears, ridiculous, like a big blubbering baby up here. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah, and after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. If you want to gather data points, that's one to gather. 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of, of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, good sign. Good sign. 52 years he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the, fear of, in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He listened to godly leadership, too. This guy looks pretty good so far. He went out and made war against the Philistines. Yeah, my kind of king kicking some Philistine, honey. And broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. He built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. He helped, or God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Munites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt for he became very strong. Uzziah is quite a king. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns for he had large herds, both in the Shephelah and in the plain. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. This was a true cosmopolitan man. This guy had so many interests. He wasn't just a one-hit wonder. This guy was involved in many things. Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war. Jumping down to verse 13, it was an army of 375,500 soldiers who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made machines. <laughs> this guy is like... He must have not have slept at night. It was amazing, all the stuff that he accomplished. He built machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. Now, 
this guy, let's just gather up some data on Uzziah. Okay, he's probably unfamiliar to most of us. He reigned 52 years beginning at the age of 16. He rebuilt Eloth. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah. He listened to Zechariah. And God made him prosper, and he made Israel prosper as a result. Israel was in great shape under the reign of Uzziah. He whipped up on the Philistines. Anybody not like that? Man, that's... uh. I'm liking that. He did some seriously great stuff. He did construction projects, military achievements, technological advances, agricultural advances. He was the best king of Judah or Israel, for that matter, that they had experienced since Solomon. This guy was spectacular until he was strong. Let's look at verse 16 and see what happened to this guy. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the priest, went in after him, and with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests. You need to get out of here, in so many words. The sons of Aaron, it's who that's for, who were consecrated to burn incense, Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Remember, he's proud and strong. He's accomplished a lot of stuff. He thinks he's pretty hot, pretty awesome. He's listened to maybe to everyone's praise. And now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy just busted out on his forehead. I wonder if it made a noise. It's just nasty. Think This stuff busts out on his forehead. In that very moment, in the presence of the priests, in the house of the Lord, by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out, because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper, lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Now, this guy grew strong. This guy grew proud to his destruction. And he went freestyle in worship. He said, I'm not going to mess with that old priest thing and this order that God has given us. And I'm going to go freestyle and I'm all for my own incense. And then when confronted by Azariah and the 80 priests, he gets mad and breaks out with leprosy on his forehead. He remained a leper for the next 11 years and the last 11 years of his reign. So around the age of 41, or, or 40 year, excuse me, 41 year mark in his reign is when this whole thing happened. And he spends the last 11 years of his life in seclusion. Now, Uzziah is so important to this story. It's so important to this throne room vision. In many ways, Uzziah's life illustrated that of Israel. He's like a metaphor of Israel. His accomplishments, his pride, turned then to compromise, just like Solomon. It's like the, uh, the quote by uh, Yogi Berra, is deja vu all over again. Man, study the kings of Israel. Study the best of them, and you'll find it's deja vu all over again. Well, uh-huh. Same song, different verse. Even the ones that serve the Lord, in the end, proved that they were inadequate. His life was a metaphor of a people who, in their prosperity, 
became proud, complacent, and who functionally dethroned God by how they lived. And the ultimate problem that this people was guilty of is over there just right here in Isaiah chapter 2. And you can listen to this passage. You don't need to turn there unless you'd like. Isaiah chapter 2, at the very end of this chapter, it says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? This people was guilty of trusting in man more than they were trusting in God. That's what Uzziah did, trusting in himself more than he trusted in God. So don't miss what Uzziah, or excuse me, what Isaiah is saying when he mentions Uzziah in this first sentence, in this first passage, first verse of this chapter. Don't miss that he is making a point about the end of Israel or the end of this king of Israel and this eternal reign of the true exalted king. Who's on the throne in this vision? It's not Uzziah. Uzziah's dead as a doornail. Though he was an amazing king for the most of his time. He is dead. The French had a phrase that they coined in the 1400s. The king is dead. Long live the king. Now that might sound weird. What they're talking about was the last king is dead. So long live the new king. In some ways that's what Isaiah is saying. King Uzziah is dead. But long live the true king. The eternal king. Man, I can't imagine a more timely vision for Christians in America right now. I can't imagine a more timely vision than this vision right here. Just this first verse of this passage. See, Christians should not be twisted over the future of our country. You could be troubled. You could be concerned. But you better not be twisted. You better not be twisted. For whoever moves into the Oval Office, it should not leave you twisted. Maybe concerned, but not in the ditch. Whether it's your first choice, or your last choice, or neither. The true king is seated on the throne, high and lifted up. That's the vision that Christians in America should carry into November and December and the next four years and the next 40 years people of God. You hear that? Man, be concerned. Speak into the issues. But don't be twisted, for our king is seated, reigning, and ruling. I enjoyed what Andy Stanley said when this whole thing started dusting up. He said, stop scaring the children. (laughs) Adult Christians, stop scaring the children. Let them see where your faith is. Let them see who you're seeing as seated and reigning and ruling. Man, what a great picture for us. These guys had experienced 52 years of prosperity and peace. You might consider in their context, they just had the best president that they could ever have. And their country was flourishing. But Isaiah had a special vision, seeing him in the grave. And seeing the high king of heaven seated and reigning and ruling. We don't trust in a candidate people. We don't trust in a president, people. We don't trust in a political system. We don't trust in a political party, Christians. We don't trust in a flag. Can I say that and still be patriotic? 
Can I say that and still having worn a flag on my shoulder in harm's way in a military uniform? We don't trust in that flag. We don't trust in our Constitution. We don't trust in our Bill of Rights. We don't trust in the American dream, Christians in America. We trust in the high king, the true king, high and lifted up, who is reigning and will reign forevermore and in a kingdom that will never be shaken. That's our citizenship, people. Man, what a timely reminder. What a timely vision, Isaiah. Thank you. 700 years before Jesus, 2,700 years ago, giving us something that we need right now, right now, today. So on Facebook, exhale, people. Man, if you feel like you need to speak into it, speak in it, to, into it, but don't be twisted. We ought to have what we might almost characterize as a sense of humor right now, knowing that our God reigns. We sung it this morning. Did you believe it? He reigns. Our kingdom will not be shaken whatever the future holds for our country. The second thing we're going to consider this morning is an obscured vision of God's holiness. And I'm going to ease through this passage because I don't know if there's a sweeter passage on the holiness of God in our Bible. We'll start with verse 1 again. We'll pick up verse 1, but we're going to move all the way through verse 4. And I'm going to take my time with it because it's full of beautiful things. Verse 1 I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And then in verse 2, above him stood seraphim. You know, I'm looking at this passage, verse 1, and I'm thinking to myself, man, that's a beautiful passage, and I'm imagining what Isaiah saw, and I'm looking for the rest of verse 1. I'm looking for verse 1b. I'm looking for something that goes between verses 1 and verse 2. And I'm asking the question of Isaiah. Isaiah, give me some details on the Lord. You saw him, right? Give me some details of what you're seeing. And the only details we get out of the passage is everything around the surrounding area. Man, look at it. Everywhere but God. There's a throne. He can see a throne. And he can see even where the throne is. It's high and lifted up. He sees a train of his robe filling the temple. Must have been quite a, a, a robe. <laughs> he sees these critters, these seraphim, that are lauding and praising the Lord. These attendants beside the king. He sees the, these, these details, but there's a complete absence of detail when it comes to the Lord. I'm aching for some details when it comes to the Lord. But maybe, just maybe, it's because... Our Lord, the high king of heaven, dwells in unapproachable light. First Timothy is a passage that speaks to this issue, that speaks to the nature of our God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse, mainly looking at verses 15 and 16, but verse 13 tells us who Paul is talking about when he talks to Timothy. He says, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God. Now carry the God over here to verse 15. God is he who is blessed and only sovereign, that's who he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that's who he is, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. <laughs> to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. See, his majesty and his holiness are so great and so brilliant, they can't even be beheld give me some details Isaiah he says man I wish I could 
but it's like looking at the sun. I can't really make out any details. I can tell you everything around it. It's like he's wincing at the brilliance of the Lord and only able to make out what surrounds him, a train that fills the space of the temple, which also gives the sense of his majesty that doesn't give room for anything else. There's just robe. There's just robe everywhere. There's not even a space to put your feet down. You'd have to wade through robe just to approach him, even if you could. And then in verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. These seraphim come from the root word seraph, which means burning ones. These guys are found only here in our Bibles. It's the only place we see these critters. And again, Isaiah is able to give us so much detail about these critters, yet nothing of the Lord He can even tell us how many wings they've got and what these wings are covering. He makes out such detail. Two wings are covering their faces, two are covering their feet, and two are for flying, which will come in handy later. Seems they're covering their face and their eyes, not their ears, mind you, to guard them too from beholding the glory and holiness of the Lord. And they're leaving their ears uncovered so they can receive immediate instruction from him. And then possibly they're covering their feet, denying any opportunity to take their own paths. But instead to go only as the Lord commands. And these critters, they're not silent though. Look at verse 3. We can hear what their message is. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The tense of this passage gives the sense that it was a one-time event. They called, sounds like past tense, but it's a perfect tense in Hebrew. And the commentators that I've read bring out the sense that this is an ongoing call. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The only critters that I know of even like them are over in Revelation chapter 4 verse 8. We can hear what these critters say. They're four living creatures. These seem to be different creatures because they look a little bit different. Same number of wings. Each of them with six wings. They're full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say. Day and night they never cease to say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They never stop. Their sole purpose in life, it seems, is to say it over and over and over again like waves crashing on the seashore as the heavens declare the glory of God. The waves crashing declare the holiness of God like these seraphim and like these critters over here saying it over and over and over again. And these two critters, these seraphim, they're calling to one another in a word that's called antiphony. They're calling back and forth to one another. It'd be like a round. It'd be like this section over here. Like these guys, you saying holy, holy, holy. And then these guys over here saying, yep, holy, holy, holy. Back and forth, back and forth, surrounding this holy king of kings and lord of lords. I'm going to give you a little side note. And there's no extra charge for this one. The side note is that God is as much praised 
when we call to one another about his greatness as when we call to him. Worship is just as much about us singing to the people beside us and in front of us and behind us, reminding one another of the holiness of our God as it is a vertical reminder, as if he needed reminding, vertical praise. It's just as much horizontal as it is vertical. That should fuel the rest of our morning in song here in a few minutes as you sing loudly, reminding those behind you and in front of you and to the left and to the right of the holiness and greatness of God. Now, the song theme is a little bit obscure. Let's take a good look at it and see if we can make out what this song is about. It goes, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We let, maybe we can study this and try and crack the code for what this thing, what's the theme here in this song and the, what these guys are saying. It seems like um, maybe it's the holiness of God. I'm being facetious because that is a glaring central message of this song. The holiness of of God. In Hebrew, repeated words mean totality. It's almost like the seraphim are sitting around saying, you know what? Let's just say he's holy once. And they're like, nah, that's not going to do. That's okay. okay, how about how about we say, holy, holy is the Lord. And they're like, no, that's not going to do either. <laughs> like, let's go with thrice holy. Let's create a super superlative is what it's called. Let's create like a whole new phrase for total holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord is what these guys say. This word holiness means brightness and it means separateness. Brightness is fitting with this concept of unapproachability, isn't it? Like the notion of approaching the sun. It's just not even something you would even think about. And then there's separateness. That's what distinguishes God from everything else in creation. And it seems both brightness and separateness are going on in, in this context, in this vision, in this use that these seraphim have in this song that they're saying to one another. It seems that both of these are going on since his unapproachability is connected to his distinctiveness or to his distinctness. The reality is that he is total and absolute, unique, moral majesty. And it's this that fuels Isaiah's response in verse 5. His brightness and his distinctness and his total and absolute and unique moral majesty. Let's look at verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. The foundations of the thresholds, the thresholds to this throne room and this temple shaking give the additional sense that God is unapproachable. Shaking thresholds and this robe that fills the temple. If Isaiah managed to get past the shaking thresholds, then he's got to deal with this robe. It sounds like an Indiana Jones movie to me. Like if Isaiah could possibly get there, he would have to pull an Indiana Jones getting there. The sense of being totally and completely unaccessible and completely off limits is what's been developed so far. Man, take that in. The sense is unapproachability 
completely off limits before we even hear a word from Isaiah. He gets a vision of a being that he can't really truly even see and a being that he certainly can't even think about approaching. So it's that vision that fuels verse 5. What a dear passage. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. The NAS says I am ruined. Woe is me in the presence of this brilliant holiness. I am lost. I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says of himself, he says, Woe. I'm done. I'm lost. I'm ruined. My lips are unclean, and if that's not bad enough, I live among a people of unclean lips. And he says all these things is because like the light of God's holiness has been turned on where it serves in some ways where he can examine himself and say, my goodness, I'm seeing my condition relative to his holiness. And I'm seeing what's true about Isaiah. This is a true and accurate vision of Isaiah in light of an obscured vision of the holiness of God. See, that's the only way to see your true condition is in light of the holiness of God. He sees himself as unclean and he sees himself as dwelling among an unclean people, which is important. It's like in so many words, he's saying this ground right here at the entrance to the throne room it's really level. I mean, Isaiah, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a prophet to Judah and Israel, but yet I'm standing on level ground with the rest of this unclean people. I'm just as unclean as they are. I'm not somehow deserving of something that they aren't or that I am deserving of something that they are. This ground is level at the entrance to this throne room. That's the sense He says, I'm unclean and I'm living among the unclean. There's just God and then there's the guilty. There's just God and then there's creation. There's no comparisons. At least I'm better than that guy when you're standing at the entrance to the throne room. Because that's the human thing we do, right? We might even carry that to church with us. We might even carry that in church. Man, at least I'm not as vile as those people over there. Did you know what they got into? At least I'm not as wicked as those people on the other side of town. At least I'm not as wicked as those people that live over there in that other city. I mean, think all the baggage, the human stuff that we can do. When we're talking about the holiness of God, there's just God and then there's just us. Period. Man, then we're all unclean. Isaiah says, I'm unclean, I'm lost. I'm ruined, and oh, by the way, we all are. This word for lost and ruined is the word that they use. It comes from the root word in Hebrew that means to be silent, which is used of the silence following disaster or death. Maybe you really experienced a disaster that just leaves you speechless. 
Isaiah is experiencing death. The feel of death before the holiness of God. And what you need to realize is that when people respond this way to some sort of revelation of God, when we respond to him with quaking and fear and woe and death, it's not because the creature is standing before his creator. It's not because creature or humanity is standing before divinity. It is a consciousness of our human sinfulness in the presence of moral purity. That's what does it. Look at Adam and Eve before the fall. They're like, hey, what's up, God? Let's walk in the cool of the day. And then they sin, and what do they do? They are hiding naked. Uh, Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. See, God hadn't changed. Man had changed at that moment. So man does what Isaiah does here. Where is a crack in the floor that I could somehow melt into in the presence of this brilliant holiness of God? Give me a place to hide because I'm experiencing woe. Man, that is a human response to his absolute moral purity. I thought what might be cool, and this might be, be the way some people view salvation, is what might be cool, cool if, if we had like some heavenly Ray-Bans. You know, we put these, our Oakleys, you know, depending on what kind of, if you kind of more sporty or traditional. But they're like polarized. Like you can withstand the brilliance, the holy brilliance. The unapproachability is no longer off limits to you because you can, you can make it out and you can step into the presence. But salvation is so much more than a pair of cool shades. Salvation is a change in nature that doesn't somehow give you some sort of shield to his holiness. The good news of salvation is that it changes your nature and reckons you holy. That's the scandal of salvation in the gospel. Is that now you are, have been reckoned holy. You have a new nature that makes us like his holy nature. That's how profound Salvation is. It's not just a, rear mechan- a mere reckoning. But it is a, an absolute change in identity. First Peter said that you're a holy nation. We'll look at that passage in a moment. That's just a little heads up. It's coming. Now, before we look at verses 6 and 7, we could reasonably expect that the Lord, this holy Lord, this high and lifted up king, could reasonably do what kings usually do when they're faced with opposition or when they're faced with rebellion. What do kings usually do when they're faced with opposition or rebellion? They kill opposition or rebellion. They smash it like a bug. We could expect at this moment that this white, hot, holy, brilliant uh, King of kings, Lord of lords, could very reasonably kill Isaiah and kill, destroy, unclean Israel. That's why he was perfectly righteous in doing what he did with the flood. He could do it with Isaiah and Israel right here. Because they're no more clean than the people before the flood. That's a theme with human beings. But here's the good news for us. This holy king is different. This holy king is going to extend some holy grace. It's the good news of this passage in verse 6 and 7. 
Let's look at this last part, God's surprise grace. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. I love that the seraphim flew, and I reckon that he had to, given all that robe. Good thing he had that extra set of wings. He flies to Isaiah with something taken from the altar. And it's worth pointing out that Isaiah couldn't pull an Indiana Jones. He couldn't get to him. God had to take the initiative. And God sent the attendant, the seraphim, to him. And God takes the initiative in our problem of uncleanness. Does anybody else enjoy that that's the good news of the gospel? Is that God takes the initiative in salvation because we can't get to him? we got robe to contend with. We've got trembling foundations at the thresholds to contend with. We have brilliant holiness, unapproachable light to contend with. But God takes the initiative, and he sends a critter with a live coal. I'm just envisioning this red, hot, white, hot, or at least gray hot coal, just this fresh coal right, right from the altar. And it represents, in many ways, what happens on the altar. If you've read your Old Testament, you've read something about the sacrificial system, you've been around here long enough, you've heard us preaching about the sacrificial system, what happens on the altar is that stuff is sacrificed on the altar on behalf of the worshiper. Critters, innocent critters, die on an altar to pay for the sins of the worshiper. They serve as a substitute paying for the worshiper's sins. (laughs) So this live coal is a picture of A fresh, moments-old sacrifice offered to atone for Isaiah's sins. Man, enjoy that, please, with me. Remember, I want to help you today. I want to help you. And I want you to see this fresh, moments-old, this fresh, moments-old sacrifice represented by this red-hot live coal offered to atone for Isaiah's sins. And then he touches Isaiah's lips with that coal, a beautiful picture of a king who ministers to the sinner at the point of confessed need. Anybody else need to see that kind of king? What a great king. And God does more in this than just tend to his unclean lips. He atones for the whole man. He leaves Isaiah changed. He says, your guilt is taken away. Not just the guilt of your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for in total. Not in part. But the whole. Anybody else just, man, if I knew the rest of the song, I'd just start singing it right now. Not in part, but the whole, if I could sing. Man, is that beautiful? Thankfully, he just doesn't deal with the sin of our lips, but the whole man. And here we leave Isaiah till next week. We found him ruined. And where we'll pick up with him next week is we'll find him ready. 
We found him saying, woe is me. But next week we'll find him saying, send me. These verses 6 and 7 are so profound they leave this man changed. I hinted at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. Peter of all people must have really enjoyed this. Must have really enjoyed writing these words. It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received Mercy. See, that coal is just a wee little hint, wee little fiery taste of what we have in Christ. See, in Christ, we have been changed to become a holy nation, a holy people. The church is who he's talking about. A holy people standing before a holy God. And Hebrews 4 is the last place I want you to look. You don't even have to look there if it's on the screen. We're kind of trying to play with some screen complementary passages up here. But it's in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. It's a passage worth marking if you've never marked it. It's the good news for us in light of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to begin in verse 14 just for the sake of context. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest that made it past the quaking thresholds. He's our Indiana Jones. We have a high priest that somehow made his way through the robe. And accomplish for us what none of us could. We have a high priest that tells us in verse 16 that accomplished something so profound that it says in verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace or find help in time of need. Can you imagine how Isaiah would have read those words? Having seen and experienced the, the vision that he did. You mean there's something so profound that I could actually approach the throne of grace with confidence? Wow. That's pretty awesome. Well, Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, that's what we have in Christ. Access to this holy king. And not limited access either. Whenever we want. And we have full rights and privileges. And we approach him confidently. Like we are his own children. And this whole vision has changed for us drastically. You remember Uzziah? We met him in the beginning. When he stepped into the temple and he tried to do priestly things, you remember what happened to him? I don't know if it made a sound, that's maybe exactly what it would have sounded like. Leprosy busts out on his forehead. There's no leprosy for us. We step into the throne room. We do priestly things. No leprosy. 
Man, I'm glad we saw Isaiah up front. I'm glad we even saw his failures. Because, man, they give us a perspective on what we have in Christ. So the major points this morning are, one, stop scaring the children. Our king reigns. Point two, God is holy. Point three, we are not. We're lost. We're ruined. We're unclean. But point four, God atoned for our sin and made us holy through Christ. Let me pray. God, what great news. What great news. I'm thankful for this throne room vision that gives us a view of your holiness, that gives us a view of what we're due apart from some sort of change of plans, some game changer. And Lord, I'm thankful that that game changer is our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that he went past the quaking thresholds, that he moved beyond the robe that fills the temple, that he accomplished for us something that we couldn't accomplish, and that through his work, through faith in him, that we have confident, even bold access to you. And no leprosy. What great news, Lord. We are thankful. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's distribute the elements. I'm glad we have these sermons online, and I'm glad for folks that are traveling or sick or have missed a Sunday or something like that, but um, they're a pale replacement for this. See, this is not just the transmission of information, but it is actually an experience. We are together experiencing the presence of the Lord. As we fellowship with one another, as we hear the preaching of the word, as we sing true things vertically and true things horizontally, there's something that takes place. And as we do what we do right now, man, I, I really can't speak to those who may be in a habit of, of kind of experiencing a virtual version of this. But I can speak to you right now and tell you that, man, don't trade this for that, ever. If you're able, if you're well, if you're not in the hospital, you're not traveling, you don't have, work hasn't called you away, man, come experience this. Because I'm, I'm speaking to something in a passage here that we're about to do. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 and 11, this is, 53 is a dear passage to many of us about our suffering servant, about Christ. A prophetic passage from Isaiah said it was the will or the delight of the Lord to crush him. That would be our Savior. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And listen to this. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. What we enjoy each week is a version of the coal being placed to Isaiah's lips where we place our Savior to our lips. And we enjoy the righteous one who made the many holy. Man, my question for those that have moved virtual or those who want to move virtual is 
How does the meal taste out there? You're supposed to taste it. You're supposed to experience it. You're supposed to taste our Savior and enjoy Him like a red-hot coal. Let's in faith enjoy and taste our Savior. Let's in faith today enjoy what he accomplished for us in the cross and take and drink. Let's continue in song. We joined Isaiah this morning in a throne room. We, we joined the seraphim in singing to and about a holy God. Man, I hope you've been helped. In fact, anybody that has any counseling appointments for me set up, let's just go ahead and cancel them all right now. Being facetious, I, but man, I want those, I want this to populate those times that we have together. I want you to reach out to me or Scott or Brad or a life group shepherd or one another for help, but let this populate that time, at least part of it. I don't think we should ever assume the reality of the throne room death that we should experience but the life that we do experience and enjoy in Christ. I don't think he wants that to be assumed. Do you? When he's got critters appointed to sing for eternity about his holiness, I don't think his holiness should ever be assumed. It seems like it's pretty important. And what kind of people could he make of us, is he making of us, as we enjoy that this morning? Man, I hope that when you go back to those problems I brought out in the very beginning, I hope they grow strangely dim and pale. They're still there, and they'll be there tomorrow, and there'll be a new crop the next day. But what a great vision to carry with you into those problems. What perspective. Thank you all for being so attentive this morning. I had... um, high expectations for our time together because it's such a, I think it's a very important passage and I'm thankful for y'all's attentiveness. Let me share a couple of announcements. Uh, there's a youth leadership meeting tonight, or this afternoon at 3.30 in the conference room. <clears throat> That's youth leadership. Uh, you know who you are if you are them and our youth leadership. And there's a deacons meeting at 5. Uh, we'll do that in here tonight at, or this afternoon at 5. And um, there's no Wednesday night activities, correct? This coming Wednesday for a little fall break. So uh, go raid everybody else's fall festivals. We don't do one, so you can raid everybody else's. Seriously. Why, I don't know why we compete. Uh, there's some awesome ones in town. So, yeah, that's, that's not a competition. Some people do it great, so go enjoy it. Um, and also, there's a ladies' fellowship tonight at 7 p.m., and that's at Christy Cardwell's house in Caddo Mills. What's the address, Brad? Did he leave? Disappeared over there. 3034 Ridgeview. And Aaron will also send out an email. So you'll have a, right? You say you do that. So we'll have a, a, a hard copy in email form if you didn't jot that down. But you could jot that down easily. 3034, but maybe for those who weren't here, could be reminded. 7 p.m. tonight. And ladies, let me encourage you. If you're not, that's just not my thing. Make it your thing, please, so you can know and be known. Man, I know that people aren't necessarily all wired to be the extrovert flitting about and meeting people and fueled by that sort of experience. I'm one of those that is not. So I get you. 
but you need it. You need to know and be known. So push beyond whatever your tendencies are and go know and be known. Get to know some of the other ladies in our church. You'll be blessed by it. Y'all stand. And let me encourage you to, if you're visiting for the first time this morning or first of a few times and haven't visited that table, please do that. We're not selling you anything. We just want to get some information in front of you. We are not peddlers of God's word. As men of sincerity and women of sincerity, we speak in Christ. But we want to get some information in front of you where you can at least understand who we are. We're not, as I just said about these, these um, fall flings or whatever they are, we're not c- competing with anybody. We just want to get some information in front of you so you can figure out who we are maybe as you're looking for a church home. So do that if you would. Let me pray. God, we are so thankful for our time together this morning. We are thankful that we had a chance for a little while to sing along with the seraphim and the other critters around your throne that are saying over and over and over again that never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We enjoyed you this morning, Lord. We quaked for a few minutes with Isaiah and we made a beeline to our Savior. He is a great, great burning coal. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Y'all have a great week.